Michael Osterlink here, and I'm with Kathy Reisenwitz. She's a San Francisco-based writer focused on sex, tech, and politics. She's a sex-positive feminist libertarian. Her writing has appeared in The Week, Forbes, Reason Magazine, Vice, Daily Beast, Motherboard, Talking Points Memo, and other publications. She's been quoted by the New York Times Magazine and a columnist for Fee, Town Hall, and Bitcoin Magazine. How you doing, Kathy? I'm super well, Michael. Thanks for having me on. It's great to have you on. So you call yourself a sex-positive feminist libertarian. Um, definitely want to do a deep dive into that. And uh, before we do, what kind of led you, to your story, to becoming a sex-positive feminist libertarian? As well as you also write on other topics, too, which we'll get into at a later date, including housing issues. Yeah. So actually, I realized recently um, I read Reviving Ophelia when I was uh, very young. I was probably in middle school. My mom just kind of had it laying around, um, which is kind of a, a feminist text in a way. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think The Beauty Myth is another book that my, mo my mom, um, she is a sex-positive feminist. I don't know if she would identify as such, but yeah. all the tenets of it, I definitely feel like I learned from her. Um, she believes women are people and that uh, we wow. have a lot more to offer the world than a reproductive capacity. She always encouraged me to go after what I wanted, whether it was to ask a boy on a date or to you know, go for a job that seemed like I wasn't qualified for. Um, just put myself out there and um, in the way she said it was do it scared. So even though I wouldn't have called myself that, I think I became that first. But I, at the same time was politically very conservative. and then. As many people do, I discovered Ron Paul um, during college <laughs> and started reading. My friend was like, oh, you like this Ron Paul guy. You might like Reason Magazine and um, Mises.org. So I started and um, the gold standard and auditing the Fed and the drug war. And I was always, uh, you know, pro uh, foreign interventionism, like go Team USA. Um, pro drug war. And then when I started reading, I was like, I really love Reason Magazine on, you know, ending regulation and free markets. I don't know about their culture, you know, culture stuff. Um, but then you just read story after story after story. And you're like, oh, like they might have a point on, you know, people deciding what to do with their own bodies. Um, so yeah, it was, it was an evolution. Um, and then I started to get more into libertarianism and started to look at like, why aren't there more female libertarians? Like, why aren't more women involved in the liberty movement? And I think it's really that we have, as a movement, kind of neglected some of the aspects of uh, liberty that are more salient to women. Um, for example, like, I'm not going to say libertarians ignore, like, the backlog of untested rape kits um, or things like that, but I wouldn't say, like, it's nearly as much of a focus as, like, you know, the corporate income tax rate. Um, so just kind of trying to make libertarianism more relevant to and attractive to people who aren't like straight, you know, cis white men with high incomes and high education um, while, re while remaining, you know, true to the principles and taking what's good about libertarianism and just expanding it to be more relevant to more people. So that's kind of, that's kind of my journey. Yeah, so um, how are you finding opening up non-wealthy white guys' minds to uh, libertarian thought? And 
opening up wealthy white guys' minds to the fact that, you know, accumulation of stuff or wealth is not the highest, I shouldn't say it that way. It's not the only value and that there are other things that they should be concerned with, including all the things that you write about and talk about. I think that what I'm really excited about is the neoliberal movement. Um, there's like the neoliberal podcast and um, the Niskanen Center and this kind of trend in American politics to kind of combine um, the best of several different viewpoints. And so I think one of the things that we can do to promote acceptance of and excitement about free minds and free markets is to make sure that we have a functioning safety net. I think that a lot of people are like, okay, you know, it's great to, you know, get rid of regulation so we have a more dynamic economy. But the way the American economy has been working is that wages for the bottom half of income earners have pretty much stagnated from 1970 onwards. And so a lot of the growth in wages is occurring at the top. Like, And that's really, so if you say like, okay, we want to accelerate growth, what people at the bottom half rightly hear is we want to make the rich richer. That's not a very inspiring message. Um, And so I think that, you know, we're at a point in time where we can afford to provide a more functional social safety net. I think that people will be a lot less um, threatened by the, uh, creative destruction required to um, achieve economic growth when they know that they're going to be okay. And so we need to combine free minds and free markets, anti-regulation, deregulation, uh, a more dynamic economy with uh, a more stable, um, making sure that, you know, everyone is, has a certain standard of living. And I'm not saying that we can afford to make everybody rich. We can't, but it, it doesn't need to be as stressful as it is. People don't need to be living on the edge the way that they are. Um, and it doesn't have to be super expensive. It can, like libertarians, I think, and neoliberals would do well to think about, for example, in California, you know, uh, unemployment insurance pays nowhere near enough to pay rent in San Francisco. And it's like a pain in the butt to get it, right? Let's fix our social safety net. Let's fix our entitlement program. So they actually work for people. Um, Then I think they're going to be a lot more open to the idea of doing the things that we need to do to make our economy more dynamic. Would you consider yourself an upwinger, meaning you integrate uh, what you think is the strengths from the left and, and the strengths from the right? together so you're not left winger you're not a right winger you're an up winger i don't know i've never heard that before but i would say that what i am is my values ultimately are number one so we don't have to have these conversations anymore like let's not the stakes of political arguments shouldn't be like death like i have to choose between my medicine and food like let's let's just like not like as soon as we possibly can, let's let's make that not the stakes anymore. And the only way to do that, um, well, there are two ways to do it, right? Growth and redistribution. And redistribution without growth makes everyone poorer. Um, growth without redistribution has its own horrors, right? And so if we had a fully free market social safety net, I would obviously prefer that. But since we don't, and I don't see one forthcoming, Um, What I want to do is get the maximum amount of economic growth we can get 
um, while providing a, a minimum uh, social safety net. Uh, and obviously, like what constitutes minimum, we can argue about, but essentially, like, let's do better than we're doing, but not so not so much redistribution that it harms growth. And I think there are policy options um, that can do that, that we just need to put the time and energy into formulating, trying, um, and going forward with. So that's, that's kind of, you know, my, my values. And then you know, how we implement that is, you know, I don't, I'm not exactly sure yet, but that's what I'm kind of aiming for. You know, let me ask, would you consider yourself a federalist in the sense like you want to have 50 different state experiments or you want Washington DC to decide what the minimum safety net would be or some integration of the two? That's a really good question. And it's something that I was actually talking with Nick earlier about um, my boyfriend, he and I were talking about kind of, yeah, the idea of federalism and local control. And I think that there's this idea similarly to how markets work better than command economies because people on the ground know what they need. Um, It stands to reason that people closer to the problem would know what they need and therefore local control would work better than more central control. But when it comes to land use policy, that's definitely not the case where local control is actually a terrible idea. Um, It leads to people basically, you know, curtailing the rights of their neighbors to use their land as they see fit, um, which is not efficient um, and does not lead to growth. Um, So I'm not sure. I think it's a complicated question that's not obvious. Like, for example, you know, if you have a local population that is more authoritarian than the average population, then is local control going to result in more liberty or more efficiency? Like, no, it's not. And, and that is true in some places. Um, at the same time, is there some principle that says that people, you know, who are more authoritarian, you know, should be able to implement? I think the key for me is how can we make whatever more voluntary? And that's where I'm really excited about the idea of special economic zones and free cities and experiments in governance. Mark Letter um, at the Center, Center for Innovative Governance, I think is his nonprofit, I forget. Um, but he's doing really cool things like, you know, getting scholars together and running economic analyses on different ways to run states. And um, Tom Bell is a scholar that studies um, special economic zones and other, in a, you know, innovative governance solutions. I love the idea of those experiments, but I think they should be as voluntary as possible. So you can come in and go as you, as you want to, as it works for you. So, um, yeah. Well, since we're on economics and, you, and uh, talking about local control and such, uh, maybe we could touch upon the housing issues, which you do a lot of writing about. Uh, and I follow a lot of your commentary also on Twitter on the same topic. Yeah, the housing stuff is so insane. I think that I really want to see more people get involved in the housing issue for several reasons. Um, So I live in San Francisco and it's definitely the epicenter of the crisis. And I see a lot of people who work in tech who are getting involved in national politics. And I think that's great. Like, I, I think it's a really good instinct. And I think that I understand like where we're at nationally. It's like, it feels like such an emergency and it is in a lot of ways. At the same time, these people have worked in tech their whole lives and they don't necessarily, it's, 
politics is not um, intuitive, right? Like it, you have to, you have to learn and study like how the mechanisms actually work, how campaigns work, all that, all that stuff and um, how legislation works. And so come in and they're a little bit ham-fisted sometimes because they don't really know what they're doing. So I think I would love to see more people get involved in San Francisco politics because it's, as San Francisco goes, so goes the rest of the country. Like the things that we're seeing in San Francisco, as far as NIMBYism, as far as not building enough housing, um, home, homelessness, the income inequality, like all of the problems poor governance, all the problems that we're seeing in San Francisco, we're starting to see in other major cities um, to a lesser extent. And it's, you know, if we don't figure out how to fix it, then we're not going to be able to know how to fix it in other cities either. And then the second reason is that I think that it would teach people who are interested in national politics how politics works to get involved in local politics. I also think that a lot of people, when they look at San Francisco, they say, why are you trying to tell me how to run the country when you don't even know how to run your own city? Like this is the worst governed city in the United States. And you want to tell the federal government how to do its job. Like you don't have any credibility. Um, and then the last reason I think it's important to fix San Francisco is that San Francisco is certainly the country's and potentially the world's most important economy. And the fact that we have housing prices that are keeping people who would otherwise be dynamic and innovative and, you know, make so much profit for themselves and the world out of the city. Like they can't afford to move here and get started. Like we cannot have dynamism without upward mobility and we can't have, we can't end income inequality without the ability for people to start you know, where they grew up and then move to where the opportunity is. San Francisco is where the economic opportunity is. Wages are high. Job growth is high. But these companies are just dying for workers because people can't, people are terrified of the rents. Um, so if we want a more dynamic economy, then we need a more reasonable uh, housing supply. Yeah, we so need. What would you do? What would your prescriptions be if... Uh, to in, in, increase housing supplies, both for renting and for purchase? Yeah, absolutely. I would say, number one, we need to streamline the permitting process. Okay. So San Francisco has an extremely long, I, I think it's like average of two years um, permitting process. It's also very expensive to get a permit to build anything in San Francisco. Not all, like the fees are very high um, and it's expensive. The whole time, if you are a developer, and you buy a piece of property, you're paying the mortgage on that land the whole time you're fighting with the city to get permitted. And then you're usually paying like lawyers and like organizations who just exist to like shepherd people through the permitting process. Um, so that's insane. So we need, to, we need to get rid of some of the hoops that we've set up um, for developers to have to jump through. Now, and, can I ask you on that? Were the, you, you use the term NIMBY, not in my backyard. Yes. Uh, it, are the hoops partially set up to protect people who already live there and their property values and their interests? I mean, where do you think those hoops came from? So there, I would say there are two broad categories of constituents that want to see hoops. Okay. I would say there's 
there's kind of the, you know, wealthy NIMBY homeowner who, you know, just doesn't, just wants to see as little multifamily uh, housing in their neighborhood as possible. And then there's this weird (laughs) market of nonprofit groups and community like benefit groups who use the permitting process to shake down developers for goodies for their neighborhood. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Um, and there are probably more constituents, but as far as I can tell, those are the two, two kind of broad categories of constituents that want to see a lengthy permitting process. Um, and then you've got the people who want to see a shortened permitting process, which are developers and people who rent (laughs) in San Francisco and people who would like to rent in San Francisco, but can't. Um, And it's really unfortunate. Like if we built enough housing, we wouldn't have to uh, see new housing cause displacement. So that goes to the other reason. So we, the other thing we need to do, we need to streamline the permitting process and then we need to upzone all of San Francisco. What's that mean? So in San Francisco, roughly speaking, sorry. Uh, What's uh, what's that mean? Oh, sorry. So. Upzoning means to uh, amend the zoning code to allow buildings that are taller than what is currently allowed. So 70% of San Francisco is zoned only for single family homes. Okay. So when you think about the fact that we're in a housing crisis and you can get a lot more people housed in an apartment building than in a single family home, it's completely insane this idea that there's not enough land is just stupid. Like San Francisco is not even as dense as Paris. Um, we have so much land that we could build on, but we are legally prevented from doing so because only single family homes are legally allowed to be built there. And that was something that Diane Feinstein as mayor, you know, passed in the seventies to basically win over San Francisco homeowners because they were afraid of apartments coming up next to them. And it's, it's, it was a bad idea then. It's exacerbated the crisis in the meantime. It's completely unacceptable now. Like we absolutely need to upzone San Francisco. Um, it is absolutely unfair that poor, um, less white areas are the only areas that get multifamily housing. That to get a multifamily dwelling you have to tear down often a rent controlled building or an old, you know a building that's already occupied um, and build a tower in its place like we should be displacing single-family homes not just apartment buildings on the east side um yeah it's just it's completely unacceptable so but it's obviously difficult it's politically difficult but it's you know if you get enough people who want to see it happen and you get enough people with resources um, to push these things through, we can do it. And so that's why I really want to activate the tech community in San Francisco to get more involved in this problem um, because it would really benefit the whole country. It, it, it seems to me that this is a great transpartisan alliance. We could bring, you know, kind of free market oriented libertarian folks and progressive folks uh, together to counteract the, 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 those 
different groups that don't want to see the change and to put pressure on the city council to move better policy. That's what I love about housing is that it is. It is single family zoning is absolutely a racist policy. It was racist when it was being implemented. It's racist in its impact now. And so any kind of progressive person person should oppose single family zoning with every fiber of their being. It, the housing and it exacerbates income inequality. It exacerbates racial segregation. Um, it impacts quality of access, access to quality education. Like it is, uh, land use policy is uh, an absolutely social justice issue where the solution is stronger property rights. So as a social justice, <laughs> I spot a feminist libertarian, like land use policy is like my jam. Yeah. Um, and I, so I'm curious because I, I do see you um, writing a lot on Twitter, like pointing out the racist nature of these policies and stuff. It makes sense to me, everything you just laid out, the changes you're recommending make complete sense to me as well. Are you getting either support and or pushback from progressive groups and individuals? Like, what are you hearing? Why hasn't this been solved already? <laughs> so I think that one thing that progressives Progressives as opposed to libertarians, I think are much more concerned with the least among us. So the people who have the, the least access to resources, the people who face the most systemic oppression. And I think that's a, a beautiful, admirable instinct to take care of the least among us. I think that's really important to protect those people and not just say like, oh, you know, creative destruction, like we need to build an apartment here. Like, you're a hundred year old grandma who, you know, uh, has could not afford to stay in your neighborhood. So when we build this apartment complex, you need to be evicted and you don't have any money to move and anywhere you could afford to go is very far from your family and friends and support system and life you've always had. That's like incredibly destructive. Like people, especially low income people really need these, um, civic societal, and they need their communities and so displacement is extremely disruptive for them in a way that displacement wouldn't be disruptive for a higher income individual right um you know oh you just join the other country club like that's not a big deal but when you're low income like that's not how that works so i think that the way that progress works like for example it's a lot easier to build on the east side than it is on the west side due to zoning okay. um, and due to the permitting process. The west side residents, even if it, even where it is zoned for multifamily buildings, they have the time and money and energy um, to show up to every community meeting and call for community meetings and file lawsuits and do all the things that they need to do to make it really unattractive for developers to try to build multifamily housing there. And so until you kind of, when, when you're clawing at the problem, it actually makes things worse for people who live on the east side and are displaced by new housing. And so progressives are like, yeah, when you upzone the west side and you streamline the permitting process and we start getting high rises on the west side um, and people are selling their, their single family homes, and that's turning into apartment towers, like, I'll be with you and I'll support you. 
But while you're doing it on the east side and it's displacing people and it's gentrifying the area and signaling to landlords to jack up their rents, um, then no, like our first priority is to protect the people who are low income and vulnerable and make sure that they don't get displaced. And it's frustrating for me because it's like, we're going to get there. Like, I believe we're going to succeed and you're just slowing the process and you're making it more painful for everyone on net. But I do empathize with them that they're like, okay, well, everyone on net is doing better than this family that we're protecting. So we need to prioritize them. So I think it's, it's, it's a question of values ultimately that they just value things a little bit differently. Um, but where I disagree with them is where they like, misrepresent the facts. So like, for example, there'll be a, a bill that would streamline the permitting process or upzone an area. And sometimes progressives will kind of overstate or misstate how much displacement it would cause or how bad it would be for existing uh, tenants. And I, I can't respect that. I think if you have good intentions and you know are right about a bill, you shouldn't have to misrepresent what it does to argue against it. Have there been any attempts to kind of bring thought leaders across the political spectrum together off the record, one or two or three day, like kind of retreaty, uh, retreaties, <laughs> retreat, um, to kind of build the relationships, find the common ground, create a campaign, and move forward together in a transpartisan manner? To an extent, I would say that California Yembe is, um, so it's obviously the statewide pro-housing um, lobbying, I think there's, yeah lobbying organization um when they proposed a wide-scale upzoning bill it's called it was called sb 827 this was last year that upzoned areas near transit um they just kind of threw it out there and a lot of tenant advocacy organizations so these these organizations that uh try to protect people from displacement um and abuse by landlords we're like, what? Like, this is crazy. Like, how are you going to protect tenants who are living near transit? Um, and so I think in the meantime, uh, they, California UMB has done a very good job of reaching out to those organizations and saying, okay, we both want to make sure that single family homes aren't what surrounds public transit. Like that doesn't make any sense. Like we should, if we're going to have density anywhere, it should be around transit. Um, so understanding that we both want that, how do we create a bill that alleviates your concerns about displacement and accomplishes the goal that we both want? And so, you know, um, the bill that they created as a result of those conversations, SB 50, uh, left committee recently, the, um, I think the most challenging committee as, as far as I understand it, and um, has been signed on by, ha has gotten support from a lot of tenant advocacy organizations. Um, so yeah, I, I wouldn't say that there's like an organi one organization that is transpartisan. Um, I mean, everybody's a Democrat, but you know, trans ideological, but to work with organizations that have traditionally been opposed, which I think is really great to see. And I definitely think we need to see more of. Good, okay. Um, what kind of what kind of feedback are you getting from the more libertarian side, not necessarily in San Francisco, but of your your friends and allies and the whole kind of movement 
for being a social justice libertarian warrior. <laughs> uh, I, I've heard you talk about the poor, the dispossessed, you know, um, racial inequality. You know, those are things I usually don't hear much from my libertarian friends. Yeah, it's been interesting. I would say that they, it's, it's difficult to get a lot of libertarians, you know, active on these issues. And I think one of the, to give them credit, libertarianism has not, for the most part, dealt with non-government solutions. So they would look at a problem like the gender wage gap, for example, and they would say, well, the solution isn't government, so we're going to ignore the problem. And I don't, to me, like I get where they're coming from, but at the end of the day, if libertarianism is going to have anything to offer the world, then it needs to have more solutions than none. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like racism is a problem. Government is generally not the solution. That doesn't make it not a problem. And for libertarian and libertarianism to not have any, anything to offer the problems that people actually face, then it's not going to be interesting or popular. Like libertarianism should be more than don't use government to solve it. End of story. Like that's boring and not super useful. I mean, it's, it's useful for a, a narrow purpose, but I'm interested in ideologies in ways of seeing the world and in systems that solve problems. Um, and so that's what I like about neoliberalism is that it says, okay, you know, the gender wage gap, um, or to be more broad because the gender wage gap is, uh, you know, kind of a narrow issue, but, uh, gendered expectations, racism, like these are problems that we see in society. Um, we want to talk about these issues and think of non-coercive solutions to them. And that's kind of my, my goal is like, okay, agree that government's not the ideal solution to these problems. Um, what, what are the ideal solutions? Like, what can we offer people as an alternative to government? To me, that should be the goal. Um, and so I like, like, and sometimes government is the solution. You know, unfortunately, I would have never said that a couple of years ago, but you know, the private solutions have not been forthcoming and I don't see them happening. So for example, to provide a social safety net, which, which creates more demand for like comfort with the, you know, uh, tides of capitalism. Um, sometimes government needs to do that. And so, how can we do it in the most efficient, uh, cooperative way possible? Right on. So I, I, I love the kind of deep dive we just went through in, in the housing issue and, and that you've, you've acknowledged, you know, racism and uh, um, class issues and stuff like that. Something else you also spend a good amount of time thinking about, writing about, talking about is sex positivity, um, libertarian feminism and the connection between the two. Um, and in the way I always think about things is kind of systemically and I see everything is connected. So I don't really see a difference between, you know, some of the issues that you write about in housing and sex positivity. Um, there's kind of underlying currents about human nature and human relationships and freedom and cooperation um, and kind of breaking out of some of these boxes that we have created for ourselves. Um, 
What do you personally mean when you say sex positive? So it's a bit of a misnomer. Um, it doesn't mean sex is good. <laughs> uh, I wanted to spell that right away. Um, to me, and I, I think this is a pretty widespread um, understanding of sex positivity, it's that sex is inherently morally neutral. So sex itself isn't good or bad. It's what we make it. Okay. And anything that we do in the realm of sex is inherently morally neutral. So your sex isn't good or bad. It's just, it's a, it's, it's a thing that you choose to do with your body. And if you decide it's good or bad, then that's great and that's valid. But I don't get to say what your sex means. Um, you get to decide what your sex means to you and to your partner, you know, you obviously negotiate. But um, yeah, it's, there's a lot of judgment and shame and this is the way it has to be done. And if you do it differently, you're wrong around sex that I think is just really harmful and ineffective and inefficient and just not necessary. And so I just want to take that idea to as many people as possible that there's, there are other ways to do it. There are other ways to look at sex and that what works for one person doesn't work for every person. And that's not because you're broken or uh, there's something wrong with you. It's because people are different. <laughs> um, and that's cool. Um, you, you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation that you came from a more conservative place, you know, free markets, but socially conservative. Um, my guess is that a lot of social conservatives would not necessarily agree with you in terms of your description of what sex positive is, that sex is a neutral thing and that individuals should choose what that means for them. And they can make value judgments on how they want, they personally want to live their lives, whether they want to do X or not X or Y or not Y. Um, as you transition from a more conservative person to more libertarian in this space, you know, what kind of pushback and how did you deal with it? Did you get from the more socially conservative minded friends of yours? Cause I have to imagine that you had the, you know, you're in that space um, as you moved out of that, their, their way of thinking, especially around sex. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I got a lot of shame. I got a lot of, you are wrong. Like you're doing this wrong and you know, this isn't what we were taught and you know better. And, um, you need to, you need to live a certain way. Um, and I had to make a choice of whether I was sure enough that that was true, that there is one right way to do sex and love and marriage. Um, that I was sure enough to sacrifice my, I wouldn't even say happiness, but it was just going to be a lot more boring and narrow of a life for me to, to live the way I'd been taught to live when it comes to sex. It was going to be a lot less interesting and I was going to feel like I was missing out. And so it was like, is, you know, do I, am I sure enough of this to give up the life experience um, of stepping outside of that narrow confine and I realized I wasn't, I wasn't sure enough that it didn't make sense that why would, you know, why would God care if I have lesbian sex, right? Like it, <laughs> that doesn't make sense. Um, 
And it just seems so like my sister came out of the closet when I was in college, I want to say. And I really had to think about, like had to think about, do I believe in a God that would want her to never be able to have sex, like to have love? Um, and eventually I was like, no, like that's, I don't, I'm not into that. <laughs> um, so yeah, it was difficult. A lot of people don't have to think about that. And, and I think we're seeing the acceptance of gay people, even within the church more so than ever, because people have been forced to think about it in, the, in a way that they weren't when more gay people were in the closet. Uh, once, once you know your sister is gay, once you know your best friend's gay, then it's like, okay, now I have to think, like, do I really believe that what I want for this person is for them to never get to have a loving sexual relationship? No, that's not what I want for this person. That's not what I believe God wants for this person. So that was kind of my, and then I'm just an extreme person. So once I kind of realized that, there was no, you know, that being like having gay sex wasn't right or wrong. It just was. Then it was like, oh, maybe all sex is not right or wrong. Maybe all sex just is. Um, and that's, that's sex positive. It's really that simple. It's like sex isn't right or wrong. It just is. Uh, so that, that, um, a great and interesting mental framework, like, oh, sex is what it is. And I, you know, was there an emotional component to you that you had to like cross over or was it just like, mm, once you intellectually got it, boom, you're that you're wide open to this way of thinking. Oh man. It was very emotionally difficult. It was so hard. So my, the two things that made me reevaluate my views on sex were first my sister coming out of the closet and then my decision to get divorced when I was 24. And I really wanted to see a counselor and um, he wanted to see our pastor and his wife as counselors. And so I sat down with our pastor and his wife and you know, I'd been, I, I'd been Christian my whole life. Like in high school, I was at church every time the doors were open, proselytizing to my friends, going on mission trips. And it wasn't just doing the things. I was a true believer. And, um, but I sat there and I laid out my issues with our marriage. And the, and the pastor and his wife kept asking me about my relationship with Jesus. And it was very clear to me at that time that, what was best for me wasn't important. Okay. What was what they wanted to see was this marriage continue because that was the right thing. The right thing was to stay married. And so I needed to understand that. And if I like put down all of my needs and just focused on Jesus and what Jesus wanted, then I would stay in my marriage. And to me, that was just, I didn't just leave my husband. I left the church because I just wasn't willing to make that sacrifice anymore of saying, okay, what I want isn't important. Like it's all about what Jesus wants for me. And it's, yeah, it was, it, it again, it forced me to think about, does Jesus really care? <laughs> you know, does Jesus care if I stay married? We didn't have any kids. Like it, it didn't, it didn't make any sense. 
else. I was like, it doesn't matter to anyone else whether I stay married, but it matters a lot to me. And so why am I going to do what is going to make my life worse for me for someone else who doesn't care? Um, and it was difficult. It was, I mean, I made a promise and it was very hard to, uh, I wanted to think of myself as someone who kept her word. Of course we all do. And I had to, I had to sacrifice that conception of myself to get out of that marriage. And I had to hurt my husband like so much to get out of that marriage. And I had to, you know, I ended up leaving the church, which was difficult. And I had to wrestle for years with what I thought about religion and spirituality. And I'm still wrestling with that to an extent. So yeah, it was very, very emotionally difficult. And I think it's hard, like when I talk to people about sex positive feminism, like for them, they're like, sometimes they're just like, duh, like, of course. Um, And I think it's difficult for people to imagine the way that I grew up as far as evangelical Christianity and true love waits and Jesus cares if you stay married and like being gay is wrong. And like these things that I believed, I believed very strongly. Um, and I don't anymore. And I had to break up with all of that. And that was a painful process that I think isn't obvious to people who weren't raised that way. And that's why I do it, right? It's like, if everyone were like them, I wouldn't be going on about sex positive feminism. If nobody had any shame around like wanting to have sex with people who weren't their husband, as I did, I felt very ashamed of that because it was wrong. Um, I wouldn't be going on about it, but I go on about it for the people who were like me or are like me, who have never been really exposed to or haven't been exposed enough to the idea that there's no one right way to do it. There's a lot of right ways to do it. Now, what would you, you know, if you ran across uh, a, a young woman who, who was in your position when you were young, age 24, um, what advice might you give them to help um, undo their indoctrination perhaps around the one right way of doing things? and helping them open their minds and hearts and bodies to other ways of perhaps living in the world. And I want to say too, that there's truly no one right way to do it. I don't think that, you know, hoeing around like leaving your husband is in any way objectively better than, you know, marrying when you're a virgin and staying with one man for the rest of your life and doing the Christian thing. And, I don't think that that is a bad path at all. It's very beautiful in a lot of ways and it works for a lot of people. Monogamy works for a lot of people. Like, um, so if it's working for her, I would say, awesome. Um, don't judge other people maybe, uh, but keep doing you if, if it's working for you. If it's not working for you, I would say, that's okay too. It's okay for this not to work for you. It's okay for this to feel um, wrong for whatever reason. And if it feels wrong enough, long enough, it's okay to try something else. Um, it's not morally wrong. You're not disappointing. Uh, you may disappoint people. It's okay to disappoint people, you know? Um, 
and I was very afraid just for like practical reasons. You know, it was very scary to leave. I left my husband and the church and my city and state <laughs> all within a pretty short time frame, and like my got a new career. It was all very scary, but it was a lot easier than I feared. It was still hard. Mm -hmm. It was still hard, but you can't go back exactly, but you know, I don't know, just to try things, to try things. And if they don't work, that's okay. But don't live your whole life wondering what it would be. Um, and that's easier for me to say is like, you know, a college educated, uh, you know, able-bodied white woman. I, I had a, a huge safety net that a lot of people don't have access to, to leave my husband. And like for a lot of people, the church is not just like a thing they do on Sunday. It's like their source of connection to the community. It's their social safety net. Um, it, it, you know, when their car breaks down, like, and, you know, and it was for my mom and, and I'm not anti-church for that reason. I think that the church is a really important institution of civil society. Um, so, but I think a lot of people have more safety net than they realize Okay. that they have a lot more room to experiment than they realize and to make mistakes than they realize. I think a lot of people are really risk averse. Some people are not risk averse enough, <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think they're in the minority. And so I just encourage people to give it a whirl. I, I really appreciate the fact that you pointed out that for some people, maybe large majority of people, uh, monogamy within confines of a Judeo-Christian system might be perfect for them and they could be really happy within that system and there's nothing wrong with that choice. Um, that's really good to hear because my experiences of some people when they go from one system to another is that they completely denigrate and attack the previous system they came from. It's like, uh, you know, there's that bumper sticker, God save me from your followers. You know, when someone wakes up to a new reality, their old reality is like evil and bad and they all they do want to do is attack it. And I appreciate the fact that, you, you know, you are living your values that, you know, you're a wide tent, big tent. Um, <laughs> and that, you know, you recognize that what's right for one person is not necessarily right for the other person. Well, I've had 10 years to chill out. So that's helped. Like I've definitely been through my angry at the church, angry at all this stuff. And I still think that the judging other people and saying that the, that there's one right way to do it. I think that's wrong. But I think that, yeah, of course, like, of course, some people are going to have a, you know, a good time with monogamy. It's, it's pretty popular, you know, and it's not just because it's default and it's not just because we're all told to be monogamous. Um, it's got its upsides for sure. I've done both and it's, man, it's a lot less time and energy. <laughs> um, it's efficient, you know? Um, but yeah, I think that it's important to be humble, right? And it, to say, I don't know what's best for you. That's the core of what I believe is that I don't know what works for you. And it's funny because some people are like, oh, you're so brave to like leave your religion and all this. And I'm like, no, I was miserable. Like if you were as miserable in your life as I was in mine, you, you know, it wouldn't take as much bravery to leave it. And, you know, most people are not, most people are not miserable. Most people are, you know, they've set up their lives in such a way that it's working for them to an extent. And maybe they need to make changes on the margins. I needed to make big changes. 
feeding you is not the happy monogamous couple who is enjoying monogamy. It's that person who's absolutely miserable in this life that's stifling to them and isn't making changes because she's afraid because she feels like it would be wrong um, because she hasn't uh, really opened her herself up to the possibility of living in a different way. I would have to imagine that the situation you found yourself in, not specific to the church and, and the marriage and Jesus stuff, but that you probably will find people in the polyamorous world who have this, like the same awakenings, like, well, this isn't for me. You know, I, I'm really more leaning towards monogamy. That's more my thing. Uh, is there judgment in the polyamory world of people who leave the polyamory world for the monogamy world, if that's such a term? Yeah, I think there's a lot of polyamorists who think that their way is more enlightened, is more in line with how humans actually are. Um, and, you know, they see going for monogamy as like, you know, wimping out and going the easy way. Um, yeah, I think there's definitely some of that. And I think probably some of that is just like, oh man, I would have liked to date them and now I can't and, you know, sour grapes in that way. Um, and I think that there's a little bit of like, I think polyamorists feel a little embattled because they are kind of judged by monogamists as perverted or bad or like their love isn't real or like you just can't commit or you're just, you know, like people have, people regularly get their kids taken away for being kinky or polyamorous. Um, yeah. Uh, people get all kinds of stigma at their jobs. Like a lot of people aren't out of the closet, so to speak, um, about being non-monogamous because they don't want to deal with parents saying like, oh, you're treating your wife poorly, you know, like, you know, you're being bad to her, yada, yada, yada. And so it's like, when you feel embattled, then when you lose a comrade, right, for like the other side, then that feels bad. And so I think as stigma decreases, then people will feel less, you know, tribal and us versus them. And then it can be more of just, it's, it's a value-free choice. Like you've weighed the pros and cons and decided that. But again, it's like, because there's such stigma, then you have to wonder if part of the reason people go back to monogamy is to avoid some of that stigma, you know, and that, that feels bad. And so that's the world I'm working toward is that these are just choices. Like, you know, you buy a, an avocado or some tomatoes at the grocery store. It's not a moral choice, you know? Um, it's just a preference. And that's, that's kind of how I see, that's exactly how, that's exactly how I see monogamy versus non-monogamy. There's no right answer. It's not a moral decision. It's a, you're weighing pros and cons and you've decided that this is what works best for you right now. And that's fine. Do you see um, legally and culturally the next area, the next battle culturally and legally is uh, is going from you know gay and lesbian um, to polyamory? Yeah, I mean, I would say there's kind of two simultaneous battles, and that would be like trans acceptance and poly acceptance, and I think tr like trans has the challenge of being such a small percentage of the population that you know they're going to see progress a little bit more slowly for that reason um 
poly people are, I think, a bigger percentage of the population and will probably grow faster <laughs> as like more people dry it out and stigma decreases. But I don't know, there, there's such different fights because polyamory is so privileged compared to uh, the, the people who are trans. So I'd almost rather see, like if you want to fight stigma and you want to fight for the rights of the oppressed and um, you want to help people who are having problems around sex, like, I, you know, trans people are definitely in a worse spot. I would put a third category, which is actually maybe making more progress than either of those groups of people, which is sex workers. I think. Oh man, right. Thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. Yeah. I think that um, because of the sex trafficking moral panic that we're seeing, um, because SESTA and FOSTA, uh, which, you know, were passed as moral panic, is, you know, stifling free speech for people who aren't sex workers, then people are becoming aware of and like thinking about sex work. Uh, in a way that they haven't for a really long time. And so the, the anti-trafficking hysteria is 99% anti-prostitution. It is, we're going to wrap this up in the uh, words of trafficking, but if you actually look at who's being arrested, it's sex workers and their clients. Um, there are very few cases of actual sex trafficking. Um, and so, you know, I think because of Sesta and FOSTA and because of these things, like people are thinking about like, does it make sense to arrest sex workers for doing sex work? Like, does it make sense to arrest their clients? Like, no, like it doesn't make anyone safer. Mm -hmm. um, so if you actually want to fight sex trafficking, Amnesty International has come out and said the best way to fight actual sex trafficking is to work with sex workers to identify victims of trafficking. Oh, that's interesting. Makes perfect sense, right? Yeah. So I would say of groups of people who are being discriminated against and stigmatized in the realm of sex, um, where we're seeing the most progress, uh, I would say sex, sex workers uh, you know, is definitely one of those categories and something that we definitely need to see more of. I highly recommend um, The War on Whores. It's a documentary. Uh, I, I saw it recently. Um, it heavily features Maggie McNeil, who's also on Twitter. Um, she's an amazing writer and activist um, for the decriminalization of sex work. Super exciting stuff going on with that. Um, yeah. Let me, let me ask you about that because, you know, from a strictly libertarian perspective it makes sense that the state should have no role in what consenting adults do you know woman woman's body is her own a male uh, a, a man's body is his own adults 18 and older um you know they should be free to do what they want as long as they're not mentally incompetent to a certain degree but i've heard arguments like yeah but these women they have no choice that you know if they had other options they would not be prostitutes or whatever degree of sex work you would want to talk about um, you know, they're sexually abused or emotionally battered, and that's why they get into this. And I'm, I have to imagine there's, you know, you can point out to ones who freely choose to get into the, into the, get into playing the, um, into sex work who haven't been sexually abused and haven't been emotionally battered or physically battered, including in pornography too, you can find those. 
but what would your argument be like besides choice? I mean, because you are a social justice warrior, so I have to imagine you would also be concerned about options that women or men to have multiple, to have options outside of sex work that they shouldn't be, not forced because they're not forced into it, but you know, other options available to them. You know, how do you, how do you argue against someone who argued that position against sex work? That makes sense. Hopefully, Absolutely. Yeah. I would say the two things that I would say are first, first that scarcity forces all of us, right? Scarcity is the gun to all of our heads, right? Like, if you go to Starbucks, do you think that that barista would be, would rather be making you a latte or sitting on the beach? Like she's there because she has to eat, right? It's probably not her first choice. Um, there's nothing inherently coercive about giving a blowjob that's not true of making a latte. Like both of them use your body for money. Um, the idea that someone would have to be fo- like forced into prostitution or sex work um, in a way that they wouldn't for any kind of like scrubbing toilets is purely born of that individual's deep discomfort with sex. Maybe you would rather scrub a toilet than give a blowjob, and that's perfectly legitimate for you, but people are different. A lot of people, a lot of sex workers, I mean, this isn't theoretical either. Like, I know a lot of well-educated, extremely intelligent sex workers who could be doing a wide variety of work that many people would find much more pleasant. Clerical work, writing, whatever. They choose to do sex work because it takes fewer hours. It's more flexible. Sometimes they have chronic pain or some kind of disability that makes other kind of like office work more difficult for them. Maybe they don't want to be sitting in a chair for eight hours a day. There's plenty of reasons where, why people choose sex work. Sex work is forced into it is just empirically wrong. But second of all, it ignores the fact that we're all forced into work. Um, through one way or another, unless you're independently wealthy, right? And it's just the amount of privilege you have dictates, you know, the the breadth of work that you get to choose from. Um, and so the enemy isn't sex work, it's deprivation. It's not having as many options as you want. I would love for no one to feel like they had to do any kind of work. That's why I value uh, innovation and, and economic growth. But um, the way to do that is to create a better social safety net, have more economic growth so there are more options available for work, like train people better. Like there are lots of ways to uh, create a, a world where nobody's forced to do anything. Um, but outlawing it, either on the demand or the supply side, A, will never accomplish that. And B, makes it much more difficult uh, and dangerous for people to be involved in that trade than it is in a decriminalized system. So, yeah, I mean, they're wrong on every (laughs) every count. Well, I I appreciate because what I'm hearing you say is, and you're being very consistent, for an individual man or woman, and I'm not talking about sex trade, just dating or relationship, no value judgment. They should just be free to operate from their heart, you know, this, you know, their own needs and wants and desires and, and relate to whoever they want to as adults, man, woman, men, 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 women, 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 whatever. 
and you're you're being and, and not judging sex it's 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 uh, as you said neutral and i kind of hear you taking that same philosophy and applying it to the sex trait exactly exactly yeah. people own themselves and people should be free to do with their bodies what they want if you say you are not allowed to have sex for money with your body then you don't really own it right that's very libertarian of you <laughs> <laughs> I, I have to imagine you take the same, you know, uh, the, the way I like to argue is when people say, yeah, but when progressives argue that women should be, that their sexual organs are their own and they should make the choices in terms of abortion, as an example, I will ask, well, are their nervous systems their own? What do you mean? I said, well, can they alter them? What do you mean? Can they use drugs? Because that's how you alter your nervous system. Oh, no, 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 no. So you, women only own parts of their body, not the full extent of their body. And I have to imagine just as a libertarian feminist that you would say that, you know, as long as you're not using force or fraud against another person, that you should do, be able to do with whatever you want to with your body. Accurate? Oh, absolutely. Uh, drugs or whatever. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So you write about these topics. You have a newsletter. You've written for a lot of different magazines and you've been uh, uh, magazines and online magazines and, and for print magazines. Um, I mentioned Fee, Town Hall, Bitcoin, Reason Magazine, Vice, Daily Beast. But you also have your own blog, um, which you have a newsletter, which I've signed up for, uh, which you write about these topics in terms of housing and, and sexuality and technology and stuff. Where can folks learn more about your work, read the articles you've written, read interviews about you, with you, and uh, sign up for your newsletter? Thank you so much. Yeah, so I'm at kathyreisenwitz.com slash blog. Um, if you look up Sex in the State, that should also bring it up, or just Kathy Reisenwitz. Um, that's C-A-T-H-Y-R-E-I-S-E-N-W-I-T-Z. And I'm also very active on Twitter, too active probably, and I'm at Kathy Reisenwitz. Um, yeah, so I also write for the Bay City Beacon. Um, and uh, yeah, if you just... Um, Sign up online on kathyreisewitz.com slash blog or follow me on Twitter. You'll get links to all of my writing. Um, definitely been focusing on housing policy lately, but sometimes touch on other topics as well. Awesome. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you so much for having me, Michael. You're welcome.